Hi, thank you for joining. This is Tom Tyndale. Hey, this conversation is an incredible conversation. I believe it will change your life. It'll change your perspective. It'll draw you closer to Jesus. It'll stir your soul for a greater ministry engagement with some of the the hardest and the most lost people on the planet. This is a very mature conversation, and due to some of the, the content that's in this conversation, I would really discourage you from having children present when you're listening to this. Uh, bring them into it when they are mature enough and it's the right time. This is a conversation that is well worth your time, and so without further delay, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome back to the EFM Podcast. We seek to create missional conversations to help equip the local church for global ministry. I'm your host, Tom Tyndale. Today we have another very special guest. His name is Rusty Thomas, and he's been the director of Operation Save America for several years, and he's been the assistant director prior to that for several years more. And one thing that I've always enjoyed about Rusty is his passion for the gospel. It just comes out. And I remember one time we were together at a, at a national pro-life event, and we were all gathered in the park, uh, closing, kind of getting a, a debrief for the, the morning activities on the street where we had been reaching out to mothers offering life and hope and healing. And in the middle of all this, Rusty's kind of, you know, he's involved with the administrative details and making sure that everybody gets marching orders and trying to corral uh, hundreds of people to make sure that everybody gets where they need to be and, and you, all the communication goes forward. But I don't even remember the city at this point, but uh, Rusty bumped into a bum on the street who was asking him for change. <laughs> and there was an opportunity to share the gospel. So everything just kind of stopped right there. And, and Rusty shared with him the real need of his heart wasn't in, you know, uh, five extra bucks or 20 extra bucks, but it was to get his relationship with God in, in tune. And that is just one of thousands of stories where uh, I've seen this guy. Uh, and I know he's got many more stories where he has a passion for sharing Christ. And there are, there are issues that we have that are many times hijacked as political issues or social issues that we think may not be relevant to the church. But the way that Rusty looks at that, and I think is a, a biblical way, is that all these issues are gospel issues. And the only answer for society is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is why we're having this podcast and why I'm really glad to have Rusty uh, on this uh, on this particular episode. So thank you so much uh, for joining us, Brother Rusty. Glad you're here. One more major aspect of Rusty's life is his family. Rusty has, what is it, 13 kids? Yeah, two, two are with the Lord and 11 left here on earth. So they have graduated from the Thomas family to the Thomas nation and Boy, there's a, there's a lot going on there, but I have been blessed by what I have gotten to know and see with the children he's raised, and I'm really excited to have him on the, on the podcast today. So thanks for joining us, Brother Rusty. So good to be with you, brother. So, Rusty, I met you 
about the same time that I've met Flip Benham, who I've also had on a, on a previous podcast at this point. And it was out in front of the gates of an abortion clinic in Dayton, Ohio in 1997. Yeah. And I distinctly remember when the call was made for rescuers to go forward. That was during a time when people were, they recognized that if, if we laid our lives down on the line, we're facing a federal felony due to the freedom of access to clinic entrance. And yet people went forward and they got arrested and Bill Clinton's attorney general, Janet Reno came after them with the lawsuit. And I saw in that moment, theology being expressed in the biography of these people. And I saw an unbridled passion for Christ and a love for the, the unborn that were going to be led away to slaughter. And so that's kind of the context where we got to meet. Uh, Rusty, how did you get involved in the, the pro-life movement? Well, brother, it's a stormy tale. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like what Jeremiah, you know, told the Lord, you set me up and I am set up. You know, the scripture says out of two or three witnesses, you know, let God's truth be established in one's life. And so it was a threefold witness. It was a threefold journey. And it literally took three weeks for God to break my heart and open my eyes to the plight of the preborn and this Holocaust that has, you know, savaged the little image bearers of Christ. So first thing the Lord did, brother, is he busted me up with a film called The Massacre of Innocence. Uh, up until that time, I was a preacher of righteousness. I didn't shy from the burning issues of the day. You know, I I would just preach God's word and apply it to myself, my family, the church, the culture, the government. And so, you know, I would even say from the pulpit, abortion was murder. The problem was I wasn't acting like someone was truly dying. And so there was a, you know, a distance between my rhetoric and my action. And so the Lord really started to deal with, with that measure of hypocrisy in my life. And like I said, one of the things he did was to place this film in my possession called The Massacre of Innocence. And so again, up to this point, you know, abortion was something kind of argued about, debated. But up until that time, I had never seen an abortion. And in the film Massacre of Innocence, the first half, Eric Homburg does an excellent job in this documentary kind of traces child sacrifice, the shedding of innocent blood biblically back to the tribes of Moab and Ammon. And uh, they were the first, you know, tribes to introduce child sacrifice. And, and he kind of traces it biblically from there, you know, to the modern day Holocaust. And it was the second part of the film that forever changed my life, brother. He had a Pat Benatar. She had a song called Hell is for Children. And every time she screeched, Hell is for Children, I literally saw with my eyes, you know, um, severed limbs, you know, decapitated heads, you know, torsos, you know, and there's just blood everywhere. My mental faculties was not prepared for that assault. I, I was not prepared. Um, it literally overloaded me. I mean, it's like a, I tilted. Um, 
I, I just, I had to shut it down. I, I couldn't, I couldn't absorb the evil that I was seeing. And so I shut down the video and I ran into my room and I, I felt prostrate before God. And I'm not talking just weeping or sobbing. I wailed so hard that my physical chest hurt. I just for the life of me could not believe that our nation had sunk to that level of depravity. You know, that parents would do this to their own children. And it was, you know, literally my Isaiah 6 moment, you know, I had seen the mind of the Lord when it came to abortion. And literally my life just unraveled before my very eyes. I mean, I was, I was truly undone. My eyes were open, my heart was broken. And I didn't know much, honestly. I just knew I couldn't walk away from what I had seen. I didn't quite know what to do about this. So the next week, I'm watching the news. And here is the first mention of Operation Rescue on a national scale. They're rescuing babies, interposing at the death camps in Atlanta at the Democratic National Convention. And this was in 1988. So the week before, you know, God busts me up, open my eyes. And then the next week I'm watching Christians at death camps, praying, worshiping the Lord at the gates of hell and being dragged away and thrown into jail. And I'm like, oh, what a coincidence. What meaneth this, you know? And so that was sort of the second fold witness that God began to really deal with me. And then the third fold witness came about a week later. And I was at the church. I was preparing a sermon and a strange man knocked at my door. Do you remember Ed Martin? I do. Yeah. So this is the first time I met him. He came knocking at my door. He was from Ocala and I was in St. Petersburg never met him before. He knocks on my door and he asks if I'm the pastor. And I'm saying, yes, I'm one of the pastors. And he says, we need to talk. And I go, okay, you know, what do you want to talk about? And he said, I just returned from Atlanta. Oh, wow. And as soon as he said that, all I could tell you is the tears just started streaming down my face. Yeah. And I'm going, yeah, we got to talk. You know what? What in the world's going on? What is the Lord doing? Wow. And he sat me down, brother, and he just said how God had moved upon the evangelical church and granted them the gift of repentance. And they started to bring forth fruits, meat for repentance by interposing at the death camp, you know, to fulfill the scriptures, you know, rescue those unjustly sentenced to death, you know. Love your neighbor as yourself. Speak for those who can't speak for themselves. And, you know, on and on and on, the passages of scripture, you know, just came alive. And it was at that point, brother, that I knew I had to do something. And that's when I crossed the line of obedience. And boy, what a kingdom adventure it has been ever since, brother. So when you crossed that line of obedience, what did that mean? Well, at first it meant the loss of everything. In in my case, brother, I was actually being groomed by TBN. 
And um, I was actually a popular preacher. <laughs> I was like booked like eight months in advance, brother. Wow. You know, and, and I was like, I was raised very, very poor, my wife and I. And so we were shocked, brother, that we could love God and serve him and actually make money, you know, and like we were, we were receiving anywhere from four to $5,000 in the mail each month. Oh my. And we were ministering three to four times a week with offerings from 200 to $2,000 a pop. And so, man, we were, we were like blowing and going. I was like, life's good. You know what I mean? Sure. But at the same time, there was something inside of me, brother, that was dying. Mm -hmm. I, I just, I was looking at the condition of the church and I was looking at the condition of the nation. And even though we were doing very, very well, brother, I, I just, I, I knew something was wrong. And my wife, she, she didn't understand me, brother, because we would minister and God would move and do great things. And I'd walk away and I was absolutely depressed. And she's like, what's wrong with you? God's moving. People are being saved, you know, and, and the Lord's blessing us. And I'm going, yeah, all that is true. And our nation's going to hell in a hat basket. How in the world can I justify this? I feel like I'm losing my integrity with God. Wow. You know, and so literally, brother, I was. I was at the crossroads, you know, where I could have, you know, people may not know my story, but I walked away from fame and fortune and Hollywood brother, you know, to go into the ministry. And, and even in the ministry, brother, I could have, you know, obtained, you know, whatever fame and fortune with TBN, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. and, and it was at that, it was at that critical juncture that God just invaded brother. Mm -hmm. And I mean, his conviction came so strong on me, brother. I, I couldn't, mm -hmm. you know, I knew I had to go with Operation Rescue. <laughs> I, I just knew that was, and, and, and I knew it was going to cost, brother, but I had no idea of the extent of that cost. And when I say, brother, we lost everything, I am telling you, literally, we lost everything to follow him into this battle. So you saw the reports of what was going on in Atlanta, and then Ed comes and knocks on your door there in, in Florida. And so what was the next step for you? Where did you go? What happened? Well, I had one issue, brother, that I had to struggle with the Lord. And so I did take a few months to seek him really in concentrated prayer and fasting, because the whole issue, brother, about breaking the law, you know what I'm saying? That was that, you know, any Christian, you know what I mean? You have to deal with Romans 13. You got to deal with certain passages of scripture because even though I could see, you know, the point of it, because they were fleshing out the doctrine of interposition, I still had the struggle with my relationship with civil government. So let me, let me just interrupt here and make this a little clearer for our listeners who uh, this is <laughs> this is a lot of information coming at him really fast. So you got the call to be as dedicated as the people in Atlanta who were getting hauled off to jail. Now, what exactly were they doing that was getting them put in jail? Well, brother, they they were in a legal realm. It would be called trespass, right? Right. But biblically, 
they were fleshing out the doctrine of interposition. And so it's really important that we understand that biblical doctrine. So for interposition to be understood, there are three parties when it comes to interposition. There's the oppressor that is targeting a victim for destruction. Then, of course, there is the victim that is subjugated to that oppression. And then there are those who are going to stand in the gap, make up the hedge to stand between the oppressor and the victim, thereby rescuing the victim and rebuking the oppressor. Now, of course, biblically, we have many you know, examples of that in scripture. We have many examples of that throughout redemptive history. But the, the one example that is the most important is the interposition of Jesus Christ right. on our behalf. And so the reality is this, brother, there, we're up against a threefold enemy that in and of ourselves, we could never defeat, we could never overcome. And that is our sinful nature, our passions and our lusts that are bound by sin. Uh, that's the beast from within us, devouring us. And then, of course, we have the satanic realm, demons that salivate at the weakness of men and exploit sin to oppress and possess and destroy. And then we got this illegitimate world system that's in rebellion to God's loving and just rule. Uh, all that was arrayed against us. And it was Jesus Christ on the cross that literally stood between us and that threefold enemy intent on our destruction, where he took those enemies on. He defeated them at the cross and with his resurrection, thereby rescuing us and providing for us his great salvation. So Operation Rescue was following that model of interposition by standing between the oppressor and the victim, thereby rescuing the victim. And it was tremendously impactful in our nation and beyond. I mean, there were literally hundreds of death camps that were shut down. Uh, there were thousands of babies that were rescued and saved. And there were thousands of souls that came to true and genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And it was so effectual. That's why the pro-aborts called upon the government to go after us and shut us down, which brings us to Dayton, Ohio, brother, where Flip and I and a few others got charged with four counts of face. So we were literally facing 10 years in federal prison and hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines that would have taken, you know, three lifetimes to pay off. But God in his great mercy delivered us out of their hands. That's an amazing story. And we, we're thankful that God has, in this instance, given deliverance. So, you know, what you're saying right now, there's a lot of people that are just, they're on freak out mode. And they're wondering why in the world I am having somebody 
uh, advising everybody to get arrested. <laughs> well, that was never that was never the call, brother. In fact, flee from people who say that. <laughs> so, I do know that that once we come to a place of full surrender, quite frankly, if we're really at a place of full surrender, then all the cards are on the table, and whether it's a martyr's death or whether it's uh, an arrest for speaking the gospel or sitting down in front of a clinic, we really do have to come to Jesus and say, okay, my hands are off. And if you give me that direction and that confirmation with the spirit, then the answer is yes. May I have the courage to follow through. But let's, let's step back for just a second because a lot of the work of Operation Rescue, Operation Save America has happened fruitfully both with arrests and without arrests. So, and what are what are some of the other ways that we could look at the rescue ministry and what is what has been done in the past and is being done now? Yeah, brother. So when the government, you know, came after us, they did crush the movement, but obviously we could not give up the call to rescue those unjustly sentenced to death. So what we did, brothers, we just basically mobilized the church to have church at the gates of hell. In other words, take the very same things that we were doing in our buildings, you know, which was, you know, prayer, praise and worship, the preaching of the gospel, and then taking, you know, basically the weapons of our warfare that are not carnal and going to the very gates of hell, believing what Jesus promised, that they would not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. So if you remember, when I was leading the way, I, I would divide our little Christian army into four teams. We would have the, the prayer warriors, the intercessors. And so while we were on the streets engaging at the death camps with the gospel of the kingdom, they would simply bombard the heavens. I mean, literally like cry out to God. It, it was a concentrated prayer effort. Mm -hmm. And then we would have the praise and worship team. And, and some people might think that's sort of strange, you know, like why would you have praise and worship at a place where they're murdering babies and shedding innocent blood? Well, we have to understand the spiritual nature of this battle. You know, we're, we're up against an enemy who has come to kill, steal, and destroy. And we have to understand, you know, demonic activity is at work at a place where they're committing child sacrifice and the shedding of innocent blood. The Bible calls that the altars of Moloch, Baal, Astara. These are the ancient evils. And this is how it's manifesting in our day. And so we also know that God inhabits the praises of his people. And so we wanted to change the spiritual atmosphere there, drive away the demonic activity, seek the presence and power of God to be made manifest. And right next to them, we would put the preacher boys. At times you were that preacher boy yep. <laughs> and, and you would minister the gospel of the kingdom and, and share the truth that can set people free. And then we would have the sidewalk counselors 
And typically these sidewalk counselors were elder women, some of them post-abortive. They were very, very effectual at reaching these deceived parents to come over, to talk, to pray. And so what we seen through that was the same sort of manifestation of God watching over his word. We would see death camps shut down. We would see babies' lives spared, and we'd see families come to faith in Christ. And so we, we continued that work on the streets, and then in the political realm, we would promote abolition. Um, in other words, convince magistrates to no longer regulate baby murder, but actually end it using their lawful authority to protect life and stop the shedding of innocent blood. And so those two things, brother, together has had a, a powerful impact on this battle for life. It certainly has. Now, I want to come back because I know there's still some people that are just in a state of disbelief and shock. But, you know, when you think about the protest and the high tension atmosphere, everybody's thinking, well, I could never do that. Well, what Rusty said was, whatever you do in church, we just did that out on the streets. So, you know, pastors, if you can preach, you can preach to your congregation on Sunday morning. Well, find out when the kill days are at the clinic are and just start going and preaching. And by the way, for those listening to the podcast, most of you are Wesleyan in background. That's how the Wesleyan Methodist movement started. <laughs> it was going out to the fields where the laborers were heading to work and reaching the lost people that knew they were lost and knew they needed the savior. So our whole heritage is wrapped up in this social aspect of carrying the gospel outside the church. If you can preach in the church, preach outside the church. If you can sing in the church, just get your family together. I mean, start there. I've done it. <laughs> and take them out to the place where they can see the clear lines between the holy and the evil. It's a great way to teach your kids to see the difference between what it means to shine for Jesus and to live for the devil. And let's make that very clear. We're going in the direction of Jesus and start singing the praises of Jesus. If you can do those two things, you can testify. There is a spiritual atmosphere that gets set up and it, it turns up the heat against the enemy in a very, very profound way. So if you can't go full bore, at least you don't see that right now, just start with what you can do and let God speak to you and through you in that area and be sensitive. And then, you know, what he was talking about with the ladies, uh, the sidewalk counselors, these compassionate women who have experience and season in life, and some of them, even that same exposure and participation with abortion, they can reach out specifically and touch these mothers. So it's not a, a shouting contest where everybody's, you know, trying to, to jump on the, the mother in, but there is an order, there's a structure, there's a group praying, there's a group having church, there's a group of uh, one or two ladies that are reaching out to the mothers and saying, hey, we've got resources, we can help you in all of the right ways. It's an incredibly powerful statement. So I promise you, if you'll do that, your spiritual life will come to an epic revival. You're going to see things in scripture you've never seen before. You're going to hear preaching you've never heard before. 
you're going to see application of the word of God that you had no idea had been sitting there this whole time. Uh, but now you'll see that if you follow Jesus where he's going and he's going to the gates of hell, uh, he'll start talking to you in new and deep and vibrant ways. You know, OSA, we spent a lot of time recruiting pastors and elders and churches into this battle. And it was sort of difficult because of the very things you're talking about. There's a great fear factor. And one of the problems is they, I think they, they don't see themselves having bravado or being very courageous, right? You know, and it is a fearful thing, you know, sort of to cross that line and show up at the gates of hell and, and deal with this issue of death and murder and bloodshed. And, you know, obviously these things are very, very unpleasant and no, really nobody in their right mind wants to, you know, be involved with something like that. That's right. And so when I would talk to pastors, some of them would come out and it was very interesting, brother, because it was a, it took a little time. In other words, they could preach a house of fire in a building, the gospel, but they became somewhat mute at the gates of hell because of this strong sort of demonic activity going on there. But if they continued to come out, and I've seen this with pastors, I've seen this with Christians, if they would just kind of show up and don't think they have to be very brave or strong or courageous, they would just show up. What they would see, brother, the spirit of God would move upon them. And the same thing that happened to me, the tears would start flowing down their face. They would see the evil and what it was doing to God's creation, and it would break their heart. Mm -hmm. And and then instinctively, you know, because I've heard Christians say, well, I'm, I'm never going to say anything. I'm, I'm never going to, you know, I'm never going to get arrested. I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to do that. And then get there, show up. And then have the spirit of God just move powerfully upon them, brother. And then I, I would eventually see pastors sort of regain, you know, their prophetic voice out in the culture, you know, this culture of death. Wow. And proclaim the excellencies of Christ and his kingdom and his salvation. Wow. And, and here's the thing, brother, these pastors, it absolutely revolutionized their pulpit ministry. That's the thing that a lot of pastors and elders in the church don't realize, brother. Mm -hmm. You know, because when, when we look at our Lord and his ministry, yes, he read the scriptures in the synagogue, as was his custom. We know that he taught in the temple. You know, we have passages of scripture that reveal that history. But if you look at the majority of our Lord's ministry, it's in the highway. It's in the byway. He's just doing life with his apostles, and, and he would put himself in positions to observe mankind, and he would see them as sheep without a shepherd, and he would have compassion, brother. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so much of the time, brother, we are insulating ourselves sort of in our Christian kind of ghetto, you know what I mean? We have our our Christian subculture, right? You know what I mean? So we could be nice and safe in churchianity, sort of speak, but we're not fulfilling the great commission and being salt and light and in, into the world. And, and that's, 
that's the big change that needs to happen, brother, with, with Christians and the church. That's absolutely right. So we have both experienced trying to engage other leaders in the church, particularly pastors. And I often hear the, the statement, well, I'm glad you're called to that. That's not my thing. Uh, speak to that voice, uh, that opinion out there, and share with them how do they fit into this picture. That is such a critical question, and obviously we need to try to answer that biblically. Tom, I kind of use the Nehemiah model in that regard, because there are national sins that bring national calamity that impacts us all. We know biblically, brother, the two major moral and spiritual idolatries that have destroyed nations, you know, as child sacrifice, the shedding of innocent blood, parading our sin like Sodom. And so any nation that allows those abominations, those are the exposed areas where the enemy can destroy nations. And so if you remember with Nehemiah, brother, when he went back in, called of God, to go back in and to, you know, rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild Israel, you know, the call upon all the Jews, it didn't make a difference kind of what your trade was, what your profession was, regardless of what your personal calling was, the walls were down, the gates were burned. And that means all of us or all of them were vulnerable to attack, to death, to destruction. And so it behooved everyone. You know, they had a, a plow, you know, they had a trowel, they had a sword, they had a trumpet, and they all worked together. Whether you were a perfumer or a prophet, you were putting your hand to the work. You were rebuilding those walls. You were rebuilding those gates. And why was that important? Because your future and hope, you know, was literally in jeopardy. And so people, when it comes to like, you know, other sins or other callings, I get it. I, I understand that to a, a certain degree. But when you're dealing with national sins, national abominations, where God's just judgment comes upon us all, you just can't flip off and say, well, that's your calling. And I'm so glad you're doing it, but I'm called to something else. It is that mentality, brother, that has allowed this Holocaust to continue to close to 50 years in the United States of America. And if you look at the fruit of that, you know, what is the condition of the family? What is the condition of the church? What is the condition of our nation? So, you know, we can continue in a fairy tale world in La La Land and turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the injustice going on. But be assured of this, brother, that our plight, literally our plight, our future and our hope is directly connected to the plight of the preborn. And what do I mean by that? No freedom for them. What's happening to our freedoms? No justice for them. Why are we being subject to injustice? 
no life for them. Well, what does that say of our future? And we know, brother, according to God's word, he will not be mocked. What men and nations sow, they shall surely reap. We have sowed child sacrifice, the shedding of innocent blood. And we have become a very violent and a very perverse culture that hates God, hates the church, hates Christianity. And then we have preachers saying, uh, we're not supposed to get involved in politics and social issues. And yet it's those very things that are that is destroying our future and our hope. And so, yeah, we got to repent of that, brother. And we got to put our hand to the kingdom plow and get to those exposed areas, rebuild the walls, restore the gates so that our children and grandchildren can have a future and a hope. That is really good. And if you'll just allow me, I want to, I really want to restate what you just said. The sin of abortion has come in as a national sin. It has been with the permission by silence of the church. And that is very analogous to the, the walls of the city being destroyed. So we can leave that up to the brick masons and the administrators to say, well, you build the walls. But if only two people are working on the job when 200 people need to be working on the job, there is going to be calamity. We have seen that calamity. And if the last two years have taught us anything, it's a, a situation where these fatherless kids have grown up without the, the voice of the church speaking truth and morality into society. And now they're burning down our cities. And if we don't get on board and get our priorities in where God's priorities are with the protection of the innocent, uh, then the whole future is up for grabs and, and it doesn't look promising. You know, when the tornado warnings go off in the city, you know, if it's Wednesday at noon, that's one thing. But if it's, if it's Friday night at six o'clock and you hear a tornado warning, that warning goes out for everybody. And if you're smart, you're going to take cover. You're not going to say, well, I'm going to wait till it shows up on my phone or I'm going to wait till somebody calls me. Well, you might just get sucked up in the blast. And I want to challenge you guys that whether or not that's coming on your phone or, or someone's calling you directly, the, the siren is going off and it is high time for the church to rise up and to take leadership in this crucial area of life. Now, you mentioned briefly about politics and abolition. And so I want to come back to that. Uh, where does, obviously, this is a, a national sin. A national sin happens with permission of political leaders and policy. How does the church fit into that? And what's our role in that? Well, I, I just wrote a book, Tom, called Biblical Strategies to Abolish Abortion. And one of the chapters is the short-term strategy to abolish abortion and the long-term strategy to abolish abortion. So the short-term is what I explained about having church at the gates of hell. That is the church mobilizing the saints, you know, operation sort of full court press with the prayer, the praise, the proclamation of the gospel, sidewalk counseling. That's the short-term strategy because a law change like five years from now holds no hope for the baby scheduled to die today. And that's where the church must be there. 
and if Christ, you know, if, if, if children are scheduled to die and be led away to slaughter, it's very important that the church be there for them. The baby, we know you're there. We love you. And we, we're here to defend your life. And if you die, just know there was Christians that loved you enough to be there for you, little one, because you're precious in the eyes of God and you're made in his image. So that's really, really important. But the long-term strategy is to understand this truth, brother. You know, God's given us four human governments for his glory and our benefit, self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. And one of the great things lacking in the church, brother, is a biblical worldview of civil government. And uh, as a result of that, that we really do not understand that the one governmental authority ordained by God to end this Holocaust is not the church of Jesus Christ. It is the state. It is civil government. We don't have the sword. We have keys. They hold the sword. And the whole purpose for civil government ordained by God is to restrain evil, punish the evildoer, and protect those who are good in God's sight. The first mention of civil government in the Bible is Genesis 9-6. When Noah gets off the ark and the waters received, one of the first things God told Noah, if man sheds blood, criminal, by man, civil government, his blood shall be shed. Why? Because man is made in the image of God. And so the primary purpose of civil government is to protect innocent life legally. Now, obviously, we're due to original sin. We're all sinners. We're conceived in sin. But I'm talking in the legal realm. They are to protect innocent life and stop the shedding of innocent blood. And this is where, you know, we just had the overturning of Roe. But before that, brother, you know, Roe was a violation of the sacred trust of the state. They were violating their ordination by God. And our nation was defending the indefensible. And so we as the church of Jesus Christ, pastors, elders, we have to develop a mission to the magistrate. We got to go to the magistrate and we have to disciple them. We have to mentor them. They need to know their God-ordained duty. You're not here to play games, religious and political games at the expense of these children's lives. God has called you to protect them and to stop their murder. And if you don't do that, you're in violation of your charge as a magistrate. And so this is what we've been doing, Tom. You know, we, we have been going from city to city, state to state, you know, ministering on the streets and going to the death camps and all going on campuses, ministering the gospel. And then we're meeting with magistrates, sheriffs, you know, legislators, attorney generals, and we're getting them good books like The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate, my book, Biblical Strategies to Abolish Abortion. And we're taking the time to speak God's word to them and understand what their duty is before a holy God, the very one they're going to stand accountable for on the discharge of their duty. And amazingly, Tom, some of them are responding.
responding correctly to the Lord. Just recently, I had a doctor. He's a pastor. He's running for political office. He's running as a congressman in North Carolina. He read my book. He said it changed his life, and he knows what his duty is going to be. He's not going to play the pro-life game, all right? Um, You know, where I exploit the pro-life base, they vote for me, check. I go to the pro-life meetings, take pictures with the pro-life groups. They raise money. You know, I get votes, and we pat each other on the back. And all this is happening and babies still die. You know, that nonsense needs to stop. And so he recognizes, I know what my duty is and he's going to do it, brother. And we're going to help him to do it. Great. So there's a, you mentioned the book and I think that's a great resource, biblical strategies to end abortion. Is that correct? To abolish abortion. To abolish abortion. Thank you. Biblical strategies to abolish abortion. And uh, we would love to help our, our readers get in touch with that. Where can they pick that up? You can go on Amazon, brother. And uh, that does help, especially if they can purchase the book there and then write a review. All right. Because that helps the al- you know, algorithms mm-hmm. and gets it out farther and wider. So that's that's one place. They can find it on Covenant Books, Barnes & Noble. Really anywhere, Walmart. <laughs> I, I find it everywhere now. So praise God for that. Great. So Biblical Strategies to Abolish Abortion by Rusty Thomas. Go find it, read it, uh, put a review on there and put it into practice. So that is, uh, that's great. Now, let me just pick up on one more question out of curiosity. You know, you, you talked about getting to interface with, with sheriffs and, and state reps and even attorney generals. How, do, how does a local pastor or even a local concerned citizen go down that road? How do they schedule that meeting? And then are, are there talking points in the book to, to help them along? Yes, there are. The principles are there, brother. You know what I mean? The principles to share are there. It's interesting, brother, because the church and pastors have been so far removed from the political realm that for most magistrates, pastors and elders are the last people that they ever come in contact with. And so for a lot of them, they're very shocked when a pastor or elder of the church shows up, which now you can understand, brother, that these these magistrates are lobbied by the wicked constantly. All the time. I mean, they got paid wicked lobbyists you know, that are putting extreme pressure upon these magistrates to do wickedly and and to codify evil into law. And so, you know, that's the poison. And the antidote, of course, is the church being salt and light. And so when pastors show up and elders of the church show up and spend time to get to know these magistrates, and, and I, brother, I just would encourage every Christian, like, who, do, do you even know, like, who your sheriff is? Do you know who the chief of police is? Do you know who your congressman is? Do you know who your senator is? Do you know who your attorney general is? Do you know who your governor is? Do you ho- know who your lieutenant governor is? And we got to purposely, brother, with, you know, be conscious in this, be deliberate to set up meetings and you don't have to go in there guns a-blazing, you know, at first, you know, begin to develop that relationship and then start to be let know your concerns. 
and then you start giving them good materials. And we got we got great materials that lay out the biblical worldview of civil government, that lay out the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, that lay out the doctrine of interposition. All these are critically important in discipling and mentor magistrates. Well, why would we do such a thing? Well, because Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Psalm chapter 2 sends a warning to whom specifically? Kings, rulers, bow down, kiss the son, worship him. And if you don't, he's got a rod and he's going to bust you up. And by the way, blessed are those who put their trust in him. And so we, we have to understand when Jesus came, brother, he didn't came to take issue. He came to take over. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. And so he is not just Lord of the church. He is king of the state. And right now, America and other nations are rebellion against their lawful king. That's why God gave us the Great Commission, right? Disciple the nations, baptize them, make sure they keep my commandments. Why? Because I'm king and I own the universe and this planet and everything in it. And so, brother, we've been negligent. Yes. In that duty. And, and we've we've got to get back to understand the church is to be salt and light in every realm, and that includes politics. Very true. All right. Well, I think you have given us a lot to chew on, and I appreciate the time. And I really pray that that those who are listening will take some of the ideas, hopefully all of the ideas, and start putting them into practice. Uh, this, this is the kind of activity that brings revival and that brings about change. You know, we, we think about miracles and divine occurrences, and we hear stories from other places and other times, and we often wonder, well, why isn't God doing that? Well, Rusty, I think you could probably say as we wrap up, you've seen some miracles happen. You've seen some lives change. You've seen lives saved. Uh, tell us one or two miracle stories of what happens when the church shows up. Well, this, this is very personal, brother, but this gives you an idea. Now, it doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen, brother. Because one of the things that happened when I crossed the line of obedience, the word of God came absolutely alive, brother. Like the things I was reading in scripture was actually happening in and through my life. You know, literally the word of God came alive. And one of the things that happened, I had, <clears throat> when God first birthed me into this battle, I had organized nine rescues in Florida. I was facing two years in jail in Florida, had a big trial. It was a big media frenzy, you know, and it was a foregone conclusion as the judges all got together. They were just going through a formality. They were going to find me guilty. And I remember preparing a statement because I knew they were going to find me guilty and sentence me. I didn't know the extent of the sentencing. Uh, they said two years. So obviously that was pretty, <laughs> pretty sobering. Right. But I, I remember I, I had wrote down a statement and just true to God's word, brother, after they had found me guilty, I had a, a chance to address the judge. And just true to God's word, brother, I stood up, the Holy Spirit fell, entered that courtroom, and where Jesus said, don't take into consideration what you're going to speak in that very hour, the spirit of your father is going to speak through you. Tom, it happened. 
It literally happened. I was saying things out of my mouth that I did not intellectually know. And it just flowed, brother. The power of God hit that courtroom so hard. The bailiffs were weeping. The, the people in, it was a big, big to-do. It filled the courtroom. People were stifling the cry. Uh, they were bawling. They were choking. Um, the stenographer, her hands were shaking. The judge's eyeballs got very, very big. I don't remember everything I said, but I did say this. Judge, I know I'm in God's perfect will. And he's going to do one of two things to you this day. He's either going to harden your heart and you're going to put me in jail for two years. Or you're, he's going to soften your heart and you're going to let me go. But be it known to you, either way, judge, what you call legal, God called unlawful. And every one of us are going to stand before God to give an account for what we're saying and doing in this courtroom. God bless you, judge. And um, the thing that happened, brother, was he didn't put me in jail. He put me on probation for two years. And so I had to go to a probation officer and report. As I'm going through this probation process, that's when the summer of mercy is publicized. Come to Wichita, Kansas for 1991, summer of mercy. So here's the deal, brother. My, my probation stated that if I left the state or I did another rescue, it's an automatic two years in jail. And but I'm getting convicted by the Lord. I got to go. I got to do this. And I turn to my wife. She sees the look, which means, you know, put the seatbelt on. We're headed down, down another adventurous road. Wow. And I tell her, I believe God wants me to go. I believe he said, go and doubt nothing. And so I went, brother. So a one week, you know, event turned into a two and a half month revival. And I had to go back and forth to report to the probation officer. I went back to Wichita, came back, had a report to my next probation officer. She was a, a nominal Methodist lady. And I had been fasting for about seven days. I greet her, we walk back to her room. I open the door, place my hand on the shoulder. Don't think much of it, just to be a gentleman, escort her into the room. We get in the room. And my approach at this point, brother, was, listen, if you ask me if I left the state, I'll tell you I left the state. If you ask me if I rescued, I would tell you I would tell you the truth. But they never asked that. So I never volunteered the information. Well, thank God. <laughs> yes. But I would have told them the truth. Sure. But the point being, I used that opportunity to minister the gospel to her and invite her to my church. And so as God would have it, she decides to come to. You invited your next probation officer to church. Yes. Uh, this, this doesn't happen every day. This is incredible. All right. So here's the end of the story, brother. <laughs> she decides to come to church on the day they announce from the pulpit. Pastor Rusty is in Wichita. He's been arrested and he is in jail. Oh, my goodness. And she holds two years of my life in her hands. Tom, she didn't turn me in. And you know why she didn't turn me in? And God didn't even let me know? Why? Apparently, when I had laid my hand on her to escort her into the room, she was one week away from a permanent wheelchair with crippling arthritis. 
the healing virtue and power of God entered her body. And God didn't let me know that virtue left my body, but he touched her Wow! and he supernaturally healed her. Oh my. And because God supernaturally healed her, she would not turn me in because she believed I was doing the work of God. Certainly were. And so brother, that's just, that's one literally of hundreds of testimonies I could give about the miraculous realm of what happens when Christians obey the Lord and cross that line of obedience. Well, thank you. And I want to, again, challenge you. You know, many of the people that are listening, I know where you're at. You're still in a state of disbelief. When Rusty said that it only took him three weeks to respond to the call, I was like, wow, that was a short time. (laughs) I want you to pray about this and to not pray with the sense of, is this God's will or not? I think the scriptures are clear. Rusty's been very thorough in his use of scriptures to present this. The issue is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to step forward despite my fear. And I want to challenge you. Yes, pray about it, but pray on your feet, moving in the right direction. God has got a lot more he wants to accomplish. And I believe uh, as, as we've seen the overturn of Roe v. Wade in the last couple of weeks, this is just the beginning. Amen. The feds have basically taken their hands off of it like Pontius Pilate and thrown it back in the face of the people. So it's not over. It's absolutely not over. But it's certainly the time for the church to stand up and to say, okay, uh, we we no longer have a federal protection for child murder. So uh, let's eliminate, let's abolish this in the name of Jesus. Well, thank you, Brother Rusty. I really appreciate you making time to be here today. And uh, we're Looking forward to what God is going to do. Lord bless you. Amen. Thanks for the opportunity. I love you, buddy. You too.